What would it feel like if here in your own country you were treated as someone who did not belong by your school, by the healthcare system or by the justice system? On top of that, what if even in your own home you didn't feel the sense of safety and protection that parents, families are supposed to provide for children? I'm describing a probably well-known and well-worn path between a kid who doesn't have the support structure or care in place or protection even that many Australians take for granted, the path between that and a life in and out of institutions. But what would it take to avert that path, change directions, change course? What would it take to help a child who's in trouble like that find a different pathway? The answer to that question and the outcomes of that kind of intervention, well, they are absolutely going to surprise you. My guest today is Sam Alderton-Johnson. He's a proud Koori man. He's the founder of Impact Policy, which is a 100% Aboriginal-owned business launched to provide social policy and digital communication services. And every project that they deliver is delivered through a First Nations lens. Sam's story is as powerful as it is confronting. And this week, which is a week that contains a day which for so many Australians is incredibly painful, this week is a week to get some perspective on why it's vital vital that First Nations people are meaningfully engaged and involved in any policy which will dictate outcomes that are specific to them. In a year where we as a country are going to be asked in a referendum to give that kind of voice in a way that we've never been able to give it before, this is an important chapter here. Before we do that, I'm going to play some commercials because we've got to keep the lights on and then we'll hear from Sam. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. When my sister was removed, not long after she was removed, I was in a counseling session. And funnily enough, my phone rings in the counseling session. Your sister, she's de- she's demonstrated some promiscuous behavior. So we're cutting all contact with you and anyone in the family. And luckily, like I was in this counseling session with this counselor. She goes, this is not right. Let me call you. So she called my Bernardo's worker. Anyway, the decision was made, like, let's keep the contact as it is. We'll monitor, you know, what's going on. We'll all keep talking and we'll make sure, you know, everything's all good. Lucky I was in that room with that counsellor when I got that phone call or I never would have seen my sister again because I didn't have the agency to be able to advocate for myself. And that's the story of what happens to our families and our communities. That's how we get torn apart. That's how we get dislocated and disconnected. Hello and welcome. Thanks for joining us. This is Osher Ginsberg, Better Than Yesterday, a podcast that's here to make your day-to-day better than yesterday, something that you hear on this show and every show will do just that. We've been here since 2013 and um, 
I'm very grateful to be a part of your week. Very much. I'm here three times a week, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Mondays, Wednesdays with a guest, and Fridays I'm here with you. I'm sitting in a hotel room currently with my family in between other family things. We moved out of one spot, but we're not staying at another family spot till tomorrow night, so we're in a hotel tonight for one night. So it's been buffet time, and we're just here dodging tropical cyclones because it's that time of year. And we are only a few days away from the very first show we're doing of NTNN NNN at the Factory Theatre in Sydney. Uh, the special guest that is locked in for our show on Friday night is going to blow your mind. This is a person who has had to go to their boss at their TV network to make sure that, hey, if I do this live show with G, am I, I'm not going to be a breach, am I? And so they double-checked and know we're okay, we're clear. But yes, our special guest is a very, very big name and uh, I'm thrilled that uh, this person has decided to come and be a part of it because it's very silly and it's very fun. And Friday night, 27th, is the first show we're doing. We're doing, I think, the next three Fridays after that and tickets for both Sydney and the Melbourne International Comedy Festival shows are on sale right now. The link is in the bio. Jump on board. Get amongst it. It'll be super duper duper fun and I'd love to see you. So let me tell you about my guest today. Sam Alderton Johnson is a proud Koori man. He's a father of five and he is the founder and director at Impact Policy. Sam lives in South Sydney. He remains deeply connected to his community of origin in Glebe, which is in the inner west of Sydney. His background in delivering on sensitive projects within the New South Wales Public Service and across the community sector has really affirmed his belief that community members must have a voice in the design of services that they use, which makes sense. Now, Sam's life, boy, it's a heck of a story and we'll get into that, but Sam definitely credits Bernardo's with helping him graduate out of high school and get into university. You see, Sam was placed in foster care after recovering from leukemia as a young man. Initially, he failed his year 12 trial exams. And when that happened, Sam committed himself to turning his school results around and his care worker arranged for him to move into independent youth accommodation out from his family home. And he was able to turn his HSC results into quite the success story. But Sam has become an advocate for extending support beyond the age of 18 for people who are in out-of-home care, which he was. Because although Sam was accepted into university, he faced ongoing challenges with uh, unstable housing and uh, earning enough money to eat, essentially. He'll, he'll talk about how we may have borrowed some food from the uh, cafeteria at the university as we speak today. He's got a fantastic story. It's a very important one to hear this very week because this day that is in this week is a, it's just a day like any other day, but for some reason in the early 90s, we decided that it, anyway, uh, every year I talk about this, but I think it's important just to let Sam's story do the talking this week. Enjoy this chat with Sam. Sam, I'm just so stoked to talk to you, buddy. How are you going today, mate? Yeah, look, I'm good, brother. I'm good. I really appreciate you taking the time to have us on. And um, I've been following you for a long time, read your book <laughs> not too long back. And yeah, really, really excited to connect. Mate, I'm, I'm always grateful to have a conversation like this. And you are an incredible success story. Uh, and I would, I'll say this. Unfortunately, you are a one in not many. You know, the the you are the you are one. 100%. You are di- you're a, you're a, you're a unicorn for what you have mm. done, and a lot of people have worked really hard. Um, to, and you you know repaid that work by um, you know taking those opportunities and 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 you know your story is just so incredible, and I really really want people to 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 hear it where you are now. And the path you are you have blazed behind you that other people are following now is so incredible. Um, Sam, you're, we're talking to each other. You are in you're in Sydney at the moment. Yeah, yeah, I'm in Sydney, on Gadigal Country here. Where did you grow up? Grew up in Glebe in the city. Uh, lived lived there most lived there most of my life. Um, you know, really privileged to grow up in a very strong um, Aboriginal community. Um, yeah, very cultural diverse community as well. Um, and a very strong and resilient community, but a one that was very much, um, very much full of a lot of social disadvantage, a lot of trauma, um, you know, and a lot of a lot of challenges that come along with that growing up as well. 
the really heavy story. I was talking with Briggs about this the other night because um, I, you know, just I just dropped names of my Aboriginal friends. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, That's him. That he talks. Briggs has this great line of, you know, people want their indigenous experience, so they book a ticket and go to the Gama Festival. He goes like, "Look in your own city, you know, right there in the inner city of Sydney, you know, people know the Redfern, but the Glebe, absolutely, like it's right there. That culture is right there." Totally, and it's and to be honest, in this country, it's it's a it's a travesty, you know. In Sydney, um, like it's a site of first contact, you know, it's a site, a site of invasion, um, and we've got the most strongest, staunchest community in La Perouse um, that are thriving. Um, but you know, people talk about you know experiencing Aboriginal culture and connecting with communities, and they're often thinking about you know, going to immersion trips in the Northern Territory and all that sort of stuff as well and leaving their states and their cities when exactly like you said, you know, more often than not, they're closely connected to Aboriginal communities already. They just haven't, you know, um, found the opportunity to connect and build those relationships as well. How early on when you were a kid did you kind of realise, oh, oh, hang oh, hang on, everyone looks, I'm, I'm not a part of this bigger thing. Yeah, look, that's that's a really um, good question and it's a really uh, not so much a complex question but one maybe for people outside of our communities to understand. You know, you look at me and me and you two don't look too dissimilar, Osha, you know. Um, I'm, I'm a fair-skinned black fella and I know that the world also reads me outside of, commu- of my community very very differently as well and um, whilst I've always been very proud of, of who I am and where my family's from, I knew from a very young age that um, the world experienced me very differently um, than some of my friends and family that I grew up with in my community. So, you know, I would, you know, you talk about um, systemic inequity and injustice. You know, you touched on some of that a little bit earlier. You know, I've got memories as a kid growing up in Glebe where, you know, me and other kids had done, you know, cheeky or you know, criminal, criminal. Um, sort Victim, of victimless and crimes. And victimless crimes. Victim, vi- always victimless crimes, and. Um, <laughs> You know, my, but it was always my my um, you know dark skinned brothers that were thrown up against a police car that were you know had their phones ripped out of their pockets and smashed on the ground and all that sort of stuff. And I was I, I my experience of police um, was very different based on how I was read, and I was very conscious of that from a young age as well. So um, you know, cult, 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 culturally in our communities, you know, if you have a strong sense of your identity and your connection, how you look doesn't mean anything. But it's also about how the world outside of our communities reads us as well. And the reality is that for me, my experience of of Australia is is also very privileged as a black fella because of how um, how how the world can read me as well sometimes. You know, and you like you've like you mentioned at the start, you know, your partner's Pacific Islander. Um, my partner's Pacific Islander as well, and and having grown up with those experiences as a kid and seeing how my family and friends have been treated, makes me really scared and conscious of the realities of the world for my kids as well. You know, my kids are very, you know, experienced. They read very differently to how I'm read, and and um, all that sort of stuff. So those fears of um, profiling, um, over policing, you know, systemic barriers that they may experience in their life are very very prevalent, and um, you know, big fear uh, as well. I think it's important we should talk about that. You know, people would say, people, like, if you're listening to this podcast still, uh, (laughs) I'd say you'd probably like to think, oh, I don't have a bias against, you know, First Nations people. I, I, I would treat a, a non-white person the same as 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 white people. I'm I'm an uh, you know educated person and I see things different. What have you learned about unconscious? I mean, I know I was shocked when I you know investigated my own unconscious bias. I was shocked because it mm. confronted how I felt that I thought about the world. What have you learned about mm. unconscious bias? 
Yeah, look, I think well, I think one of the first things is for anyone that might be experiencing what you just said when you learnt about that and feeling shocked is to not feel guilty that you might have an unconscious bias because the real reality is that there's a media misrepresentation and bias of how Aboriginal people and communities are portrayed. That's just a fact. You know, there's a, there was a Senate, in, Senate inquiry only the other week into missing and murdered Aboriginal people in this country and one of the key things that came out of that was the media bias and misrepresentation of missing and murdered First Nations people in this country. There's been extensive studies and research that show that um, that the lives and, and the representations of our people in the media um, are, are not represented equitably and that that skews, you know, broader public opinion and perceptions about our people and our culture. Um, so, you know, when people... Went, you know, like so, like you know, when you say you went on that journey and you're a bit shocked, and someone else that's listening to this might go on that journey and be a bit shocked. Like that's you know, you, you, we're growing up in environments where we've had people that are you know maybe your age, Osher, that have grown up at school being told that Captain Cook discovered Australia and not learning about um, the stolen generations and the policies that were put in place to um, you know segregate our communities and dispossess us from our country and our culture. Um, so like. The, the reality is that, you know, people have had a lot of things stacked against them in terms of understanding our people and our culture and, and the strength and, and beauty of it too. So, um, but there's no question asked that there's definitely some structural things in place that make it really hard for the Australian community to really come along on this journey of, of um, you know, truth and justice and, um, you know, walk, walk alongside with us. The first thing you said there was like, when we discover our unconscious bias, A, don't feel guilty. What's the next thing we can do? Next thing we do is it's about once you uncover it, it's about being curious. I reckon it's about being curious about where that's sort of come from um, and then and then taking a bit of action in terms of looking at how best you can maybe re, not rediscover, but, you know, reevaluate some of those perspectives that you might have, you know, held for a, for a while at different stages of your identity or your youth or, you know, wherever you are at that stage of your journey. I think it's important to understand that our people in our culture are very much, um, you know, we've talked about media bias, misrepresentation as well, but a lot of the dialogue around our people and our culture and our history comes from a deficits dialogue. You know, there's close the gap, you know, we talking about the over representation of our people in prison, you know, the fact that we die 20 years younger than non-Aboriginal Australia, all these, you know, systemic problems and issues in, in our country as well. And, and they're critical and they're so important. But it's also important to remember that being here and in this country, we're connected to the oldest continuous culture on the planet and there is so much strength and pride and resilience and um, so much that we can learn from culture and country that is still alive and still thriving. So whilst there's much bias and representation um, and there's also a lot of dialogue in policy and in government around the problems and the issues, all really valid that need attention and, and to be addressed, there's also a real absence of the fact that we should actually be really, as a country, proud and and really looking for opportunities to embed Aboriginal language, Aboriginal knowledge, Aboriginal culture into everything that we do because it's what makes this country so special and great. And once we start to move past that understanding of, you know, perhaps that unconscious bias that we may have lived with, we can start to really move into like, actually, I've been living, you know, perhaps a part of my life where I've really had this perception that is actually almost in a lot of ways a polar opposite to how I should be thinking about how, you know, I connect with country and culture and communities here in, in, in my own place of the world as well. So, yeah, it's 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 not an easy answer sometimes and the journey is going to look different for everyone, but I think they're some of the key principles you know, if I could try and tie it together. Yeah, you're, you're right in that the only time we really see uh, positive words or sentiment attributed to a First Nations Aboriginal person is uh, – if they're an athlete and they're successful and they don't say anything. <laughs> totally, totally. That's pretty much it. Win your gold medal, win the footy game and be quiet. <laughs>
That's right. Uh, That's right. Not allowed to do. You're not allowed to. You know, say both, which is a real shame and and has happened far too much in our history. But you know, we with every every day we have an opportunity to do do things differently. You, uh, you know, we've been speaking a bit about systems and the government intervention in in people's lives. You you are a person that your youth was. There was a lot of engagement with some of these systems, wasn't there? Yeah, massively. Um, you know, we talk about um, forced child removal and, you know, the impacts of the stolen generations and all that sort of stuff as well. That's something that my family's very closely connected to. But even within my generation, my my sister was um, living with my father in the block in Redfern, very notorious part of the Aboriginal community in, in Sydney. And they lived with my father down there on the block for a period of time, but that was at, that was the place where my sister was removed. So, you know, Friday night, the police came in and banged down the door and took my sister away at seven years old and she never came home. You know, she went into the system and, and that was her story. And people want to talk about the, the systemic barriers and, and letdowns around that sort of stuff. And, you know, whilst they're complex, I can share some stories that help provide some insight. You know, I remember being 16 years old, and I was living, I left home when I was very young, so I wasn't living in the family home, but I still stayed connected to my sister and, and my family. But I lived in foster care placements as well with Bernardos, who I know you're a big advocate and supporter of too. But at this point in time, my father was homeless and he was had care of my sister. And my mum had a diagnosed mental health condition. She was um, diagnosed with schizophrenia. And so I grew up you know, experiencing, you know, living with a, with a parent who's navigating that. And she she battled dual diagnosis because she experienced a lot of complex trauma as a child and um, dealt with a lot of addiction and that. And so, as you know, with dual diagnosis, I know you're familiar with that that reference, um, the impact Double winners, that. baby. Double yep. winners. That's it. That's <laughs> it. That's it. But, you know, I remember being 16 with my father and he was – homeless with my sister and walking into, you know, Department of Communities and Justice is the name of the government agency in, in New South Wales at the moment, but they've been, they've been called FACTS, DOCS, a range of different names in the past. But I remember walking in there into those doors with him and him begging for help, begging for help with housing. I've got nowhere to go. I've got a six-year-old daughter here. Please, I need help. I need a house. I need some sort of support, some sort of emergency accommodation. And the support that, that they said, look, we can't we can't do anything for you. Uh, all we can do is we can put you in a room and you can try and here's a phone book. I think it was maybe it was a phone book or here's a list of numbers and you can call some uh-huh. crisis. So no support, no opportunity to advocate, advocate and, and support a parent that's homeless with a six-year-old. So he gets put into this room. My father's, you know, semi-literate at the best of times. And he sits there and he maybe calls one or two numbers and then he goes, fuck this. And he just gets up and he leaves. Less than a year later, he finds himself living down at the block in Redfern. And surprise, surprise, on a Friday night, the same service that he begged for help less than a year ago came in on a Friday night and took his daughter away. And then the system couldn't work out why this father is so aggressive and angry and won't engage with them, you know? And so he he then he then he's got a lot of, you know, his own issues and trauma. But he was super aggressive and, you know, very hard for any of these caseworkers now to navigate. And he was, you know, labeled, you know, all these labels. And I just remember thinking as a kid, like, hang on a second, this is someone who came begging for help. And then you've literally came and ripped. <laughs> ripped his kid out of his hands it's um so we talk about like the complexity of the system you know the overwhelming burden on the system the uh, the resources and the lack of support for families to be kept together you know all the research says that if we can invest those resources into actually keeping kids with their families and looking at a family-centered approach as opposed to just taking kids and 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 addressing immediate issues that that the long-term impacts are, are more, you know, positive for our families and our communities. But, you know, look, that's just one example of a multitude. But yeah, I, I left. I left home at a very young age. I left home at um, at fifteen, and I'd had um, leukemia actually at the age of fourteen, and um, I found myself in the hospital and my father and my mother's addiction um, and my mother's mental health stuff sort of just you know, really took a spiral. I think the trauma of having a child go through such a life-threatening thing at, at that age really triggered a lot of that trauma and and so that stuff really amplified. So luckily enough, the social workers within the hospital 
I could see that, you know, hang on a second, this kid's parents are really not well. And um, so luckily the social workers intervened and and made the referral for Bernardo's to be engaged. And then I got the opportunity to live in, in a foster care placement. So I left home at 15 and lived in foster care placements in King's Cross around Sydney and and all that sort of stuff. Never went, never went back home um, to live and yeah, finished my high school. You know, I was living, I was living by myself since the age of 17 in a unit, semi-independent housing, they were calling it in Bernardo's at the time. Um, and finished my year 12 completely by myself, um, away from all that and, and yeah, navigating my, my sister's removal and, and placement into the foster care system. So yeah, it was, it was pretty complex and, and pretty, pretty challenging sort of time, but I went to school with a guy whose parents fostered kids. I think by the time we were in grade 12, he had had 34 people or 35 people that yeah, wow. he had grown up, you know, they, uh, they were pretty pretty special family i know that's not everyone's foster care experience yeah um definitely in the same way that you know when people talk about stepfathers and stepmothers we it's usually the wicked stepmother trope mm-hmm. so that's the one we hear or the you know the the powerful like overpowering stepfather we don't hear that we only hear that that side of it so um in your what what was your foster care experience like hey it must have been super scary to suddenly be with these strangers who probably wanted to help yeah definitely Definitely. Look, I think um, my sister particularly. So, like my sister, you know, my sister went in as a child. She was seven years old. She never left, um, but she was very, very lucky because I've got I've got a lot of friends who I grew up with who'd been through the system, and their stories are really tragic in terms of the placements, the number of placements, and how they've navigated it. So, she actually stayed with the same placement. So they have a crisis, short-term carers. Those carers put their hands up to take care of her for the long term. So she had the same placement from the age of seven to, you know, as an adult. So that that's that's like her second family. So yeah. she was very, very lucky. But I sort of say that in haste because she also missed out on so much. You know, she's lost so much connection to culture, her own sense of identity, her own sense of connection to community. You know, she was from really strong Aboriginal communities that she's completely lost connection to and all that sort of stuff, which we know is so critical for our health, our well-being, and all that sort of stuff in the long term. So, you know, her experience was you know, one of one of the probably better stories in if you look at it from a systems perspective. But regardless of how you think about it from a cultural perspective, you know, very little of those needs were met when it came to what she needed as an Aboriginal young person. My experience, like I was, oh, I just turned fifteen, right? So I'm a fifteen year old teenager. I came from a bit of a, you know, Glebe's a rough community. I was a bit of a rough kid before I'd gotten a bit sick. A lot of, you know silly sort of stuff, um, petty youth crime, all that sort of stuff. So to find myself living in King's Cross in a foster care placement just sort of blew my mind because I thought Glebe was a tough place to grow up in, but living in King's Cross behind uh, on Victoria Street, behind Darlinghurst Road at the age of 15, you know, and seeing, you know, people injecting in the streets, in the laneways. And um, I'd see girls that I grew up with in Glebe selling, you know, selling drugs at the train station there at King's Cross, you know, on the way back from school. And so I just remember thinking like, Oh, this is a chaotic place to put a young person that's um, at risk of being at home. But um, you know, my my placement wasn't the best one because not because of anything wrong with the person that put their hand up, but it was just that I think I was probably at an age where I I didn't want a parent. I didn't want another parent. I was a 15-year-old teenager, but what I probably needed was a mentor. And so it, it wasn't the best fit. I grew up in a house with a lot of addiction, right? So I'm probably one of the anomalies in the space where like I actually hate being around alcohol and drugs, you know? And so as a, as a kid in a placement, like my foster parent was an alcoholic, but he liked to drink. He liked to have people over on a Friday night and they'd have a bit of a party or whatever. And so as a, as a young person, like that really triggered me and I really didn't like that. And I really didn't feel safe about like yeah, being certainly around if you, that. If you've been- Growing up in the environment you've been growing up on, this I I you know the smell of beer means later on something's going to get broken. Exactly, and you're just waiting for it to happen. Totally, you know? totally. And it it might never happen, but you know that that's the you know it, it's like I don't know. Say you got bitten by a dog when you were you know four. Every dog, even my stupid cavoodles, will terrify you because totally. that's what dogs do. 
you know, it's the smell of wine or whiskey or beer. That's enough to make you go, there's going to be a fight. This is the smell of fights, you know? 100%. And, and 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 that's that's that can be hard for for people to understand. So if you're at fifteen, so what did what's your what's your recourse for that? You're fifteen, you've been moved for your own care at the age of fifteen. Are you able to go, guys? I don't know, this isn't working out. Yeah, look, I was I was, I was actually really lucky in Bernardo's. I had a, an amazing caseworker. My my sister in her placement as a kid had about may easily. 20, 30, maybe more caseworkers throughout her journey. There was a different one every couple of weeks, every month. And whereas my story, I was in, I was a connection with Bernardo's for four years and I had the same caseworker that whole time. And that's, that's so critical for community services and community development is that consistency, um, particularly for young people or communities that have experienced trauma. And um, so for me, I was really lucky. So she could see that like, that wasn't the best placement for where my needs were at. And so she really advocated for me to, because I was hardly spending any time at the home. You know, I'd just go back to Glebe and I'd just float around. And so she really advocated for me to move into this semi-independent house. So I basically moved into that when I got into year 11 and I lived by myself for, for year 11 and year 12. And um, that's how it was. So it was very isolating and, you know, it was very alone, but um, in a lot of ways, it was it was the best of a bad situation, you know, and um, could have been a lot worse as well. And what what were you doing at the time? Like, yeah, we've got a lot to unpack. You're dealing with your like your sister. You're dealing with your parents. Have you got support? Are you talking to a psych? No, nah, look, I had a really great intervention with a counsellor, um, and that was only because my girlfriend that I was going out with, she lived in a young girls refuge in Erskineville, an amazing women's refuge called Lillian's for anyone that's listening. They do amazing work and she lived there. And so I'd follow my girlfriend around and she went to this counsellor in Marrickville at Rosemount, Good Shepherd Services. And um, while I was there, they were like, oh, but do you want to see a counsellor? And I was like, oh, while I'm here, I may as well. Would never have sought out help as a young person, you know, never, ever. But it was the best clinical community intervention I could have had at that age. and, you know, really great soft entry as well. You know, it wasn't sort of something that was pushed at me or anything like that. But, yes, yeah, so I was I was lucky I had a, a, a small counselling intervention. And there's actually a really interesting story about that when we talk about, you know, you've, talk, you've touched on some of the systemic barriers about kids getting taken away and families getting mm. pulled apart. And when my sister was removed, not long after she was removed, I was in a counselling session. And funnily enough, my phone rings in the counselling session. And I'm a 17-year-old kid. Answer the phone. Or 18. I might have been 18, actually. I was still in high school, though. I answered the phone. And this caseworker at the time said, oh, hey, Sam, your sister, she's she's demonstrated some promiscuous behaviour. So we're cutting all contact with you and anyone in the family not that anyone in my family had seen her. And I was like, oh, okay. And um, that was it. It was just really blunt. That was the end of the phone call, hung up. And luckily, like I was in this counseling session with this counselor and the counselor could read my, my face. She's like, what was that about? What happened? So I had the opportunity to unpack what had just happened with, with a professional in front of me. And she knows that I'm not full of shit because she's literally watched it happen in front of her. Yeah, and yeah. um. She goes, this is not right. Let me call you. So she called my Bernardo's worker and between her and my Bernardo's worker, they coordinated this case conference with my sister's workers and their bosses. And out at the Bernardo's office, there was about, you know, eight people. And and I had, you know, my best mate was there as a support person. We all sat in this circle and we said, like, this is the only connection that this young kid has to her family. And this is the only connection he has to her family. Like, this doesn't make any sense that, this a knee-jerk reaction like this would happen where you'd completely cut their contact. And, you know, we all talk, they all talked about it. Anyway, the decision was made, like, let's keep the contact as it is. We'll monitor, you know, what's going on. We'll all keep talking and we'll make sure, you know, everything's all good. And so, and the, the worker that had made that call, she never looked at me. I was, and never said nothing, never apologized, just, you know, walked out. And I remember I was, you know, 17 year old kid, Osher, and I just feel like, I just felt like, fuck, man, like lucky I was in that room with that counselor when I got that phone call, or I never would have seen my sister again because I didn't have the agency to be able to advocate for myself. And that's the story of what happens to our families and our communities. That's how we get torn apart. That's how we get dislocated and disconnected. And I was just, 
so, so lucky that I was just in the right place at the right time and had a couple of support services that could be there for me. Yeah. yeah sorry. I was just tears coming in my eyes, man. Just thinking about, you know, if that was my brother or, you know, how old was your sister at the time? She was seven. So she was seven. I was 17. Promiscuous behavior at seven? What the fuck? That's a yeah. fucking trauma response of anything. Totally. Get around the fucking kid. Totally. Jesus Christ. To dehuman, like, that the other person wouldn't look you in the eye. That she wouldn't, like, to how, how, what's going on in your heart? Yeah. How, like, do you need to get out of the industry if that's where you are? And that's fair enough. If you've been exposed to this shit every day, I understand you might have fatigue. I get that you're decision making. Take a break, dude. Like, totally. If you're totally. making calls like that, just dehumanizing a child who's clearly in danger mm. to the point where you're like, nah, like, it's Jesus. Yeah, like, definitely. Go do something else for a while. Definitely. Like, because I, th I think about, you know, I'm tr trying to think about what happened to her. Mm. What happened to her? Like, what has to happen in your life that you will just completely, like, wash your hands of the welfare of a powerless child, seven years old? It's clearly demonstrating something that is in response to something that's going on in our life. Totally. That's, oh, fuck me. I'm yeah. so happy that happened for you. But you're, you're, you're right. You, you know, just the stars and planets aligned and it was able to happen, but you know, to, to be left out, you know, against these impenetrable, impenetrable barriers, unable to navigate these things. That's the kind of thing we were talking about at the start of like the fair go. It just that is not a fucking fair go. And there's no way that you at 17 or she at seven could mm -hmm. ever, ever get that kind of, kind of fair go. I'm, 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 I'm real impressed that you were still in school and you stayed in school. What was it about staying in school that, I mean, clearly was something okay about it. You stick, stuck around. Yeah, look, to be honest, um, it was probably getting sick. Um, before I got sick, I was doing a lot of petty crime. I'd been, I got kicked out of my first high school in year seven in the first four weeks at Balmain High. So I'm a myself at Glebe High School, suspended multiple times again. You know, yeah, petty crime, drug use, all this sort of stuff was happening. wasn't in the greatest, of, wasn't going down the greatest of paths, you know, like many young people in my community just navigating how we survive the trauma and the struggle that we've yeah. been born into. That might resonate with some people, it might not, but it was what it was. When you see stuff like that in a, you know, your, your grade, grade seven, what's that, you're 12, you're 13, yeah. um, you know, if the age of criminal criminality is ten, like that is clearly a trauma response. If you're if you're using at twelve, you're yeah. not using because you want to get high. You're using because you want something to stop. You want something to go away. Totally. All right. So to criminalize a trauma response, uh, it's again, it's so completely inhuman. Um, and fuck me, like, sorry, I sorry, I'm just yeah. there's so much to talk about. It's, it's really quiet, but yeah, it's important no, to have seriously. these conversations. It's important to be with how just come uncomfortable it's being in my body um, to think about what I got to have that you didn't get to have, and what our system does to people who are navigating in the only ways they know how. Um, people like your father who are homeless with a child, if they steal food, like they're just trying to feed the kid. Don't call the cops on it, man. They're just trying to fucking feed their child, right? That's the story of our justice system too. You know, I've, yeah. got, a, I've, got, I've got an honours degree in criminology and, you know, we talk about media bias and misrepresentation. Overwhelming amount of people in prison are dealing with diagnosed mental health conditions, issues around alcohol and drug addiction, and have come from overwhelming experiences of childhood trauma. You know, so it's not a – the issues aren't around crime. The issues are around healing and and you know, how we think about healing and we think about trauma and all that sort of stuff in terms of how we think about yeah. justice. So, yeah, it's... Um, yeah, yeah. So we, uh, I could talk... Uh, yeah, we yeah. talk a lot about... Uh, yeah, we talk a lot about our prison system and the job we, we ask it to do. Uh, so you're, you, you got sick. What happened when you were sick on the other side of you getting into remission Yeah, that yeah. changed your path? Yeah, so I think having to go through something like that at that age really... It gave me a bit of an insight into, you know, your own mortality. And, yeah, you confronted, you're 14 years old and you're confronted with the fact that you might die. That That's yeah. a real, that's a real reality. So as a 14-year-old trying to process that makes you think a lot about purpose and what's all this about. 
and um, you know, I got really sick, and I even had a stroke. I had a, a I had a rea- I had a reaction, a bad reaction to a medication that's injected into my spine that goes up into your brain. That's about trying to make sure no secondary cancers come into your brain, and I had a, a side effect as a result of that. I had a stroke, so I was paralyzed down my left side for four oh, days damn. in the brain trauma unit when I went through that journey. You know, you think about I I, I used to think about people that have a stroke as like the, in the movies when someone has a heart attack, it just sort of happens. But you know, for me, that stroke happened over like almost a 48-hour period. You know, so I went through all that in the space of 12 months. So I came off the back of that with this sort of motivation, I guess, to to want something out of my life. And then so that was probably a big reason about why I I stayed connected and stuck in at school. That's not to say that, you know, the wheels didn't fall off again because I found myself again once I was better. Luckily, I went straight into remission after I was very, very sick for 12 months. But then I was sort of, you know, very much back to normal after that in a lot of ways, I found myself back into the same structural and community um, challenges and, and and trauma that I was surrounded from before that. So, you know, it wasn't a perfect recovery and, and trajectory into wanting to have a perfect life. I still had to navigate and overcome all those real pressures in my community. And that was still there right up until I finished high school. And then, you know, in only just on Monday, New South Wales has increased the age from 18 to 21 for support for young people living in out-of-home care. New South Wales was one of the last states. Adelaide was the most recent. So when I was 18, I was supposed to be kicked out of Bernardo's, not kicked out, but I was supposed to be exited from Bernardo's with nowhere to well go again. Well done, off you go, life. Have That's fun. it. That's it. Yeah. And luckily... I'd repeated because I was sick. So I was 19 when I finished my HSC and my yeah. all the workers were like, fuck, we can't, this kid's gone, he's in year 12 now, he's gone through so much, we can't just exit him. So they were really good at bending the policy and keeping me there. But once I finished year 12, that was it. And I had to be exited and I was homeless again. And I was, you know, um, yeah, it, that was the reality again for, for quite a while until I got it some stability. Were you able to keep in touch with the people from Bernardo's, you'd had a relationship with these people for years by now. Yeah, look, my, my caseworker did her very best to, you know, like I got, I, I got ended up getting into, into uni in my after high school. So I got into uni. I was really stubborn about going to uni and proving that I could be there and that I could be there just yeah. like any other kid. So I wanted to enroll and I went there and I did my first semester. My caseworker helped me enroll and all that sort of stuff. But after that, that was it. I was I was couch surfing and I was homeless again. And she tried to set up some, you know, post exit sort of strategies, but they just all fell apart. And there was just a lack of services that were available. So, you know, I was I was homeless for pretty much that whole year in that first year of university. You you talk about the high schools you went to. We're, we're talking like you know, eighteen twenty years ago. Now, uh, I'm sure they're somewhat different. They might be nothing not different at all, but they're kind of you know. Bit gritty, rough around the edges kind of places with everyone who's just from the area. Uh, mm. So that's who they are. Suddenly you're at university with people from all over the country, all over the world, mm. all different kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds. What was it like in that sitting in that first big kind of couple of lectures where everyone figures out, oh, I can just skip this and go to the treat. Yeah, fine. Like with those yeah. first couple of ones, the first couple of weeks, what was it like being around these people with like great clothes and shoes and bags and shit? Yeah, and I always felt um like the other you know what i mean like i always i talked earlier in our yarn about how the world reads me as a black follower outside of my community is very different to other other family and friends but i i still even going into the university space felt like i was in a different world there you know and and how i grew up and you know how people from my community got around wasn't necessarily something that fitted into the university sort of space. So I very much felt um, like I stuck out like a sore thumb. And um, that was the story for the rest of my journey. You know, to be honest, I actually, I, it took me eight years to do my degree. I had to do it part-time because the reality was I had to get a full-time job as soon as I could because if I didn't, I couldn't survive. And um, so, you know, I did my degree at night. I did it part-time, you know, working you know, five days a week, but studying on a Friday and night classes during the week. And that's just the reality of what I had to do to be able to do it. So I, you, you talked about equity at the start and people getting a fair go and starting at the same sort of pace. A fair go for me would have been able to, you know, 
live at home for a little bit with some supportive family and have some resources to be able to support me to bring my full self to my course and all that sort of stuff. The reality was I had to provide that for myself and and navigate how to do that in a world where my parents had hadn't been educated past year year eight and no one in my family had ever been to university this was something completely foreign for my family but also anyone in my community didn't know anyone in my community that had been to university so it was this whole new world and new sort of space but i don't know for me i just really believe that if there was ever a way for me to transgress the intergenerational poverty the world in which i'd grown up in that i knew education was one of the most powerful tools that I could try and hold on to to get there. And so that was always my anchor for never giving up. And, you know, it, it took a long time, took twice as long as most people, but um, it was that belief that, you know, it was um, critical to wanting something better for what I've been given. You've you've spoken about this publicly. So, um, uh, you know, it's, I, I hope it's okay to bring up, but can you, can you tell you, tell me about your, your early, uh, how your degree was subsidized early on by the, the cafeteria? Yeah, you're saying that. Yeah. Yeah. Look, that's the, the, you know, some of those stories are the funniest because like they're the real nuanced realities of what it was like. So like, you know, we, like I was like, before I even had a job in that first semester, I was living off, you know, ab study and Centrelink payments and they weren't going very far. And so they used to have this make your own sandwich cafe. They used to have them back in the day. I'm sure um, health and safety has ruled them out these days, but you could literally make your own sandwich and then you'd weigh it at the end of the table and then you'd pay for what it weighed. And um, peak hour at uni, like if anyone's ever been to uni, you'd know it's packed. So, you know, I'd be there stacking up, you know, the six foot, subway equivalent and um you know that'd be not getting that'd be getting weighed and then or not getting weighed i'd just be disappearing into the crowd of of people but that was you know, i had to survive and i learned the two dollar boiled rice hack i learned that living in king's cross because i would watch all these private school girls at the thai cafe downstairs on a cold day with all this boiled rice and i'd be like one day i walk next door uh, and I was like, well, what are all these girls buying? It was at St. Vincent's College. And they were like, oh, they buy boiled rice with satay sauce on it. And I'm like, oh, how much is that? They're like, oh, it's $2. I was like, oh, fuck. Yeah, no one put me onto this. So that, that got me through that first semester of not starving, you know, $2 boiled rice and, you know, stealing my own sandwiches to get by. But, you know, <laughs> can I have a laugh about it? Um, but at the time, yeah. it was – it was it was a sad and it was a, a scary thing, like sitting there thinking, like yeah. I'm fucking starving and I'm going to steal this sandwich because if I don't, I've got to be here for another six hours and I've got nothing to do. I've got enough money to get home on the bus and that's it. So we can laugh now, but at the time, like you felt like shit. You felt like uh, yeah. dog shit, you know, having to do that sort of stuff. And it's just, it was the reality, you know. It was yeah. what it was. Mate, well, look, I'm I'm sorry that. That happened to you. I'm, I'm glad you figured out a way to get fed. And yes, carbohydrates, protein, and some pretty good oils. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend living on it, but you can do it. Yes, um, why, why criminology? Yeah, so it's, that's that's a good question, and I'd never heard of criminology before. And I actually got into study teaching. I wanted to be a teacher, and um, I found it as an elective. And I was so interested in it because I came from a community full of crime you know, full of youth crime. And that was just so much of a lived reality um, of survival was crime. It was so normalized in my community. So I was really, really, when I saw this course called criminology, I got really interested in it because I was like, fuck, hang on, I know a lot about crime. Like, surely I'll do well in this course. And um, yeah, that's how the journey went. Like I went on and I, I fell in love with the course. I really got passionate about it. You know, some of that stuff I touched on earlier was less about the justice from a criminal perspective, but more about the justice from a social perspective. Because for me, I thought about crime in terms of our communities surviving, in terms of our communities, those lifestyles or those behaviours being normalised because of intergenerational trauma and, and poverty and all that sort of stuff as well. So that was what really drew me to it was because I was like, I feel like there's a different lens here that needs to be brought to these conversations about crime and justice. It's not just about the big bad guys that are pure evil and you know just want to go out there and harm people there's actually people out here that have grown up in worlds that are completely different to the ones that people are writing about um, or holding the pen you know um, and so it was about trying to bring a bit of a narrative um, and perspective into that space as well so yeah that was the motivation there and you know like doing my degree part-time like it was a blessing in disguise in a lot of ways because I got to start my 
career journey early, I was very lucky to get my first job was working at the PCYC, which is a community youth club with police and working with kids at risk very much like myself. So that got me started early. I went and worked with Red Cross. I worked in prisons with men coming out of jail. I worked in juvenile prisons with young women coming out of prison. You know, so I had a really good journey working in that space and, and seeing firsthand the impacts of what we talked about at the start of this, all of the systemic barriers and, and you know, realities that many people in these places haven't had a fair go and for the most part that's why they're in these places as well it's because of how their lives have been carved out for them as young people just a moment away to remind you about the live shows that we're doing friday night this friday come and see us in sydney tickets are only 20 bucks for the sydney shows factory theater i think there's a few still available for this friday but uh following three fridays we're on there's special guests in every show it's uh, it's a live satirical news show. It's shit tons of fun, and I can't wait for you to come and be a part of it. Melbourne International Comedy Festival shows are on sale right now too. I'm fucking terrified about this stuff, but if you don't put it together and you don't put it out there, are you ever really going to know? So that's what's happening, and um, just trying my best, guys. Let's just put it up the flagpole and see if it flies. So far, it's going all right. But uh, it's very much we're definitely building the plane as we're taking off here. So <laughs> we'll see if we get to lift off speed. But uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, we'll be back with Sam in just a moment. If you want to get tickets to those live shows, I'd love to have you along. The link is in the show notes. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You went on to you know, create uh, impact policy, uh, which delivers a lot of uh, you know projects around the kind of thing that we've been discussing, like pretty mm. tr- tricky things to do. Mm. Uh, why did you feel it was important to to start uh, start your company? Yeah, it's. I've been really interested in um, in lived experience. And for a long time, Osha, I never talked about my lived experience because as a young person, I grew up in places where I would be at community forums or community meetings and I would see like old aunties in our community say stuff that was really valid and relevant that would just be disregarded and labelled as, as as angry black woman. Or I would see men in my community sit back, the most smartest and capable men sit back and not engage in these spaces and places because they hadn't been safe, established as safe or culturally safe spaces for, for those people to have, bring their perspectives into those. So I got really conscious at a young age that I didn't want my lived experience to take, I didn't want my lived experience to be disregarded as as not relevant or um i just i just carried this baggage so i went to university and i got my degree i graduated with honors i did really well with it academically so then i had that pride okay now maybe my lived experience is a bit more valid because i've got this degree now but then still i was like i went on my in my professional career and i i managed to do some really great stuff there and it was only when i got to the most sort of senior of places in the public sector that I felt like I had credibility now that I could bring my lived experience into a conversation and that it was Mm. backed by an evidence base academically, but it was also backed by years of professional experience at the most sort of senior of levels that 
people couldn't take away from my lived experience anymore. If anything, it was like the cherry on top or it was like something that underpinned all that. So kicking off impact policy was really about a way of bringing or bringing those three pieces together, but really being grounded in the importance of co-design and community engagement with our communities. You know, so much policies get developed for our communities by people that are so far disconnected from those communities. We've talked about some of that stuff with child removal policies and stuff like that and justice already. But for me, that was one of the big motivations is about, like, I really believe in the principles of co-design and co-designing solutions with people with lived experience. It's so important. When I I sat for a couple of years on the board at SANE Australia, it was at the start when it began, it's the oldest um, mental health uh, charity in in the country. It was an acronym for schizophrenia or a national emergency. I'm probably going to get the history kind of wrong, but it was just around when the kind of new antipsychotic drugs showed up and people no longer needed to be in asylums. You know, they could have a day room or whatever, but there were so many decisions being made about the lives of people living with schizophrenia by people who had never lived with schizophrenia or, or never knew anybody with schizophrenia. And, you know, another version of this we saw earlier this year in the States, you know, there was that incredible photo of all these people deciding, um, oh, this is what women can do with their bodies. And there's this That's room so of right. white men, not a, uterus, not a uterus among them. Deciding 100%. what is right and wrong for women to do with their own bodies, and so they're two examples. So, it, you know, and so then to, to draw the analogy is like, why would you make any policy around uh, any part of our community without a member of that community involved to go? Actually, I see what you're doing here. However, uh, in our community, for example, um, such and such uh, culturally uh, needs to have this person talk to them first. That's it. Oh, okay. Boom! Instantly, I've just made that up, but uh, totally. you know, it's it makes it makes no sense. Hundred percent, hundred percent. And we, there are some sectors that try and do it better by having community representatives, but even then, we I think about it from a power perspective, right? I'll show. So, like, if you're on that board and you're the only person there who has lived experience, what's the power imbalance? You know, in terms of mm. the weight of your experience versus eight other panel members that are experts, you know, in mental health, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's almost one verse eight. And I see that all the time in Aboriginal communities where they bring in one Aboriginal representative who is then the voice for all Aboriginal communities and culture across New South Wales, you know, <laughs> like, and so for me, I'm like, how do we get more people with lived experience yeah. that can build careers in these spaces and be empowered and not burn out and, and and have long and fruitful careers in those areas yeah. too. And yeah, it's um we have a way to go, but I feel like there's a piece of work there that can really have a systemic sort of impact. What's something that people listening can do to su- to support um, the kind of people who are at risk, the kind of people that you've got projects dedicated towards? For people listening that want to get active and engaged. I think, you know, a big part of what we do is we try and raise awareness around critical stuff that's happening from a justice, you know, our core values are access, equity, inclusion, and justice. So a lot of the comms that we put out talk to a lot of current things that are happening in that sort of stuff at the moment. The biggest thing that we need people to be a part of is, is connecting with, you know, the hearts and minds of why this sort of stuff is critical and important. You know, our, we have a blog that came out last week that talked about the um, Senate inquiry into missing and murdered First Nations people in this country today. It's not so much also just about our work. It's about how do we seek opportunities to grow our understanding of some of these factors that are right here in our faces. You know, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to get on and be plugging impact policy and all that sort of stuff. But if there's any survivors particularly though, that are listening to this, that are one thing I will say, if there's survivors here that are listening, survivors of a trauma or lived experience that they are still connected to professionally, or they might do advocacy work for personally, uh, we would really love to hear from you because we're trying to build a network of um, professionals and practitioners that have lived experience so we can really try and think about how we um, understand how best practice can look like in terms of supporting um, and empowering staff and professionals to be able to continue to do this work for the long term and stay well themselves. So if I can have any sort of call out to anyone listening, it's it's yeah. to connect with us around that. Mate, it's a way of helping that has been 
proven like I'm I'm in a I'm in a fellowship of sobriety, shall we say, of people that help each other stay sober. And the guy that helps me to this day, 12 and a bit years later, like I only listened to what he was telling me because he had been drinking and using and been on the bones of his ass. And he went, yeah, I know what that's like. Happened to me. Now I'm married. Now I've got a you know job. Now I've got a career. Like, oh, all right. If it was a person who'd never had the problem that I had, like, fuck, I'm going to listen to you. Totally. And it's so It was so important. And, and similarly, when I got really sick, uh, when I was going through all this psychosis shit, I needed to hear people who had been where I was. And go and see that they were better now and go, oh, okay. I can't imagine how I'll ever get there, but you've done it. Maybe I could do it. And Definitely. it's just, it's just, it's not rocket surgery. Like it's, it's, it's vital. Totally. And it's really powerful. It's a really powerful thing. And I'm bloody, cheers, man. I'm, I'm glad you, I'm glad you're doing it. We've got a lot of work to do, man. Um, so if there's anything that I can do, uh, don't hesitate, mate. I'm always able to, I'm always around. Um, hey, look, just, yeah. just one thing too on that. Like I've been a massive fan um, of you and I'll <laughs> Thanks, tell you man. why. And you'll know that I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass because it's a really specific example. I run, okay. the, I run the Indigenous Marathon Foundation Father's Day Warrior Run. I run it every yep. year and, and it's, you know, one of the things that has pained me the most about COVID is that we've, it's stopped since COVID sort of happened, but it ran for, I think, four years in a row and I ran it every year that it ran. And there was, a, I think, at least two years in a row where I saw you there participating in the race. And I saw you the first time, um, maybe I saw you the second time, but when I saw, I remember I said to my partner, like, how good is it that he's there on Father's Day? Like, Father's Day, it's a special day. It's not just like yeah. I've rocked up on a casual Saturday or, you know, my mates have dragged yeah. me there to be that part of this thing. You had a Deadly Choices Broncos right, Aboriginal design jumper on. Arthur Beatson, of, first Australian, yeah. first Queensland State of Origin captain. Thank you. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Um, you had a bit of ochre slapped on. And, I did. But, and, but what stood out for me the most is that there was no, like, um, posturing, there was no like, you know, you, you you have a profile, right? But there was, it was a very much a place to celebrate, celebrate black excellence and, and um, community stuff. And you were just there participating in it, being a part of it, but there was no like show to any of that sort of stuff. And that's what sort of sold me on Osha right then and there. And I said <laughs> it to my partner years ago, I said, he's, he's, he's a real one. And that's how, you know, he's a real one. And yeah. So when I got the opportunity to have a yarn with you, I was just like, mate, really, really stoked. So when you said that, that's why I wanted to share that little memory I with you. I appreciate it, mate. Thank you. Talking. Look, I could talk to you for a long time, and and yeah, but like I said, man, if there's anything I can do for you, I'm particularly interested in what we were talking about earlier about the criminalising uh, of a trauma response in kids and raising mm -hmm. the age and stuff like that, and that sort of stuff. I think is just fucking camp passion, man. It's just, totally. it's not hard. Totally. Uh, the idea of what our prisons do, I don't think, um, is the job we want them to do. Because at this point, there's no amount of time that anyone who goes inside can do before their next door neighbour will feel comfortable about them moving in. Doesn't matter what they did, you know. Totally. And for that prisoner, there's no amount of time that has passed since they got out that'll pass until people treat them like they used to treat them. And that's shit. And, um, yeah, something's got to be done around that. Uh particularly if it's just a criminalizing a trauma response. Um, totally, which, totally. As you mentioned, you know, so there's a lot, a lot of work to do there. But look, you know, it means there's something to do everywhere. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's <laughs> it, know? that's it. It's easy to find a thing to start on. Um, let me know if I, can do, if I can do anything for you, Sam. You're a bloody legend, buddy. Nah, you too, bro. You too. I've really appreciated you taking the time. That was Sam Alderton-Johnson. Massive thank you to him for being on the show and a big thank you to Bernardos for setting up that conversation. They do fantastic work and you can definitely hear in that chat with Sam why it's so important that we support care services like Bernardos. Really, really important. However you spend the 26th of January this year, I hope that conversation with Sam has given you something to reflect upon. Uh, the 27th of January, I'd love to see you in Sydney at the Factory Theatre in Marrickville. Uh, there might be a ticket or two left by the time you hear this. 
So check in the show notes, you'll find a link. And if you can't find a ticket to this Friday, there's three following Fridays after that, you can come and get a part of that show. Uh, like I said, the special guests are pretty good. They're locking in and um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. But by the time Friday's show, you'll see the kind of guests that I'm talking about, but it's going to be it's going to be good. Melbourne International Comedy Festival tickets are on sale right now as well. You can find the links to all those shows and all the tickets are in the show notes. Thank you so much for being a part of it. Thank you to everybody that helped me make this show together. Andy Ma on audio and video post-production who's chopping up a echoey hotel room voiceover via the mobile Wi-Fi dongle <laughs> to his house in, in Victoria. Rachel Barrett, the executive producer of everything. Uh, Bruce Steele on research and support and uh, Toe Hyder on the music. All right, that's Wolf telling me I've got to go. All right, coming. All right, I'll see you on Wednesday. Bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.